The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. I have to tell you, oh, so excited about our show today. I really am. I have looked forward to this show. I have uh, a friend on who is internationally known, uh, an author, a social scientist, human rights leader, uh, international expert on slavery, You know, I could just go on and on, but he has done so much, so much to give back and to help the world. Thank you for joining us, Kevin Bales. Joyce, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, Kevin, we love having you, and as many of my listeners know, we have had Kevin on as a guest before, but I think it is so important His message is so important, and one of the things we're going to talk about today is his new book, Blood and Earth, Modern Slavery, Ecocide, and the Secret to Saving the World. May I just mention, this book is riveting. You've got to go, just go to Kevin Bale's uh, Blood and Earth. You'll see this book. You've got to buy this book. Oh, it will change you. This book is just so very important. And before we get started, and Kevin, I know you have told me this story before, but every time I hear it, it has the same impact on me because you are that person that saw something and did something. So if you don't mind sharing with our listeners how you first became involved after seeing that pamphlet that you told me about. Could you tell that story, how you first became involved uh, and co-founded Free the Slaves? You've done so much. How did that start? Well, you you know, this was in the early 1990s. I was living in London, uh, teaching there at a university, and I was at a public event, and there was a small little NGO that had a table there and it, on it was a leaflet. On the table was a leaflet. And the leaflet said on the, its front, there are millions of slaves in the world today. And I looked at that leaflet and I thought, you know, how could that be true? And I have to admit to pride and, I, and a little bit of hubris because I was teaching about human rights. I had worked in the area of human rights. And I, and I had that very silly moment when I thought, well, how could that be true if I don't know it already? Because after all, I teach at a university. So, you know, pride goes before a fall. And I certainly fell when I picked up that leaflet and, and looked at it and, and looked inside the leaflet and found there were only anecdotes. You know, a, a story of a woman from Poland who had been caught up in sex trafficking or a child who had been caught up in debt bondage in India. And I thought, you know, a few anecdotes don't make up millions of people in the world. And I started to just bin it, just to toss it. 
But I also began to think, if this is true, then this is, this is astounding. This is, this is huge. And if it's not true, well, then someone ought to say so, and we should, you know, debunk such a, such a crazy claim. So I, I put it in my pocket, and over the next weeks and months, I began to just dig around, dig, looking as a researcher, as I often do, trying to find out what the truth was. And it wasn't easy to uncover in the early 1990s, but the more I looked, the more I found. And then, ultimately, I went into the field, and I began to meet people in slavery, and all of that changed what I was about, I have to say. I was, a, I was a social scientist with an interest in human rights. But when I began to realize how large, how extensive, how pernicious, and how damaging to human beings slavery can be, I, I was called to do that, to work on that. Which I just think is, just says so much about you. You know, how many people would see this and walk away? and that you did something about it just says so much about your character and your leadership in the world. And I have to tell you, before I read your, one of your early books, Disposable People, I am sad to say I, too, am one of those people that if you said, oh, there are all these billions of people in slavery throughout the world, I'd be thinking, what? Oh, come on, you never hear about this. How often do you hear about it? And I read that book and I said, oh, my goodness, it's true. So why don't we talk about that for a moment? Throughout the world, slavery is global in the world today. Are there parts of the world, Kevin, where it is concentrated? And how many people live in some form of slavery in the world? Yes, well, the first thing I should say is, is we, we have now some very good new information about how to measure people in slavery and how many slaves there are in the world today. And that, those, that new information gives us a conservative number, mind you, you know, a conservative number suggesting there are about 36 million people in the world in slavery. Now, in terms of where they are, I have to tell you, uh, we're talking about every country in the world. There, there seems to be slavery in every country of any size. There are some very tiny countries, you know, like the, like the island nation of Vanuatu out in the Pacific, but it only has a few thousand people. But uh, leaving aside tiny little countries, nation states like that, we are finding slavery in every country. There are countries that have very large numbers of people in slavery, like India, uh, we think there's something like 14 million people in slavery in India. But then, of course, India has 1.2 billion people in it. So you also have to think in terms of the countries that may not have large numbers, raw numbers in slavery, but all also have a high proportion of their population in slavery. So if we, if we look at the country of Mauritania, for example, which is in northwest Africa, in the Sahara Desert of northwest Africa, we believe that the population of, of that country is, is somewhere around 4% slave. In other words, 4% of the population of that country is caught up in slavery. And we also have some very good, info, good data that suggests you know, the country of Haiti is about 2%. Now, those, are, those don't sound like large percentages, and they're not, but when you think about 
a significant what that turns into when you're talking about how many people are in slavery in that country. It's, it, it becomes a, a very serious issue and, and, and pervasive within the country. Wow. But you know what? When you said it's conservative, 36 million is a lot of people. It is. I but mean, you know, that's Joyce, terrible. There, there is a paradox to these numbers. I think it's a very interesting paradox. And what I, the reason I'm using the word paradox is because 36 million people in slavery is an awful lot of people. It, it's obviously far too many than we should ever allow. But it's also true that 36 million people out of a global population of 7.2 billion is the smallest fraction of the world population to ever be in slavery in human history. So it's this tiny, tiny fraction of a, of a 7.2 billion global population. And likewise, we know that the estimated economic output from those 36 million people comes to around $150 billion per year, which is an awful lot of money, admittedly. But in a global economy of something like $12 trillion, it is, again, the tiniest fraction, the small, very smallest proportion of a global economy ever represented by slave output. So we've got this situation where we've got large numbers, but they're also tiny numbers in, in relative terms, in proportional terms. And that paradox is actually very positive because it says to us that while the world still suffers from slavery, we've pushed it right out to the edges of our global society. In, in many ways, you could say it's standing on the brink of its own extinction and just waiting for us to push it over. You know, that is true. The only thing I would say about this is it's so heinous, you know, that even though, as you just said, in comparison to the rest of the, you know, the number of people in the world, it isn't, but it's just such a terrible thing that it's hard to believe it's anywhere. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean because, it, you know, it's that, it's that almost the ultimate denial of human worth. It's almost the, the, the ultimate denial of human dignity. I only say almost because, you know, I think, I think a, a murder, a genocide may, you know, is, is in the same category. But it's at, a, it's at that level like genocide, where you have to say, this must be rejected by any thinking person, any feeling person, any person with any de de decency. And yet, uh, as, you, as you've said, Joyce, that, you know, we're still coming to grips with understanding how to, how to bring slavery into the picture in a way that it has that universal, not just rejection, but a universal action that would prevent it occurring in the way that we're all so careful and watchful about any sort of massacre, any sort of large-scale genocidal activity. Oh, so terrible. So ter You know, it would be as if you said, well, it isn't that bad compared you know, to the uh, number of people, but they're killing 36 million babies. Do, do you know what I mean? It's just yes, I do. so horrifying that, you know, you don't want the number to be there at all. Uh, but right. 
I was reading your book, and you know, there are so many different types of slavery. Um, And one of those was that peonage system. I wondered, could you talk about that, explain what that is? Because um, I could not believe, as you explained, the correlation to slavery in the United States. Oh, and before I forget, folks, when he said every country, that, that includes the United States. You know, slavery exists in the United States. But anyway, go ahead. Can you talk about the various types of slavery? Certainly. I mean, I think... I think one of the important things to say before I say anything about a type is to explain that slavery is what it's always been in human history, about one person controlling another person by, by use of force uh, and then using that force and threat and control to exploit them. So about the complete control of one person by another using force and threat and then using that to exploit them, to could be economically, could be sexually, could be both, could be a lot of, of those variations. Now, what happens around the world is that people have that core activity that would be, which, which is true of all slavery, but they wrap it in different kinds of packaging. Here, in one place, it might be, you're, you're of the wrong religion, so that makes it fair for us to enslave you, or you're the wrong ethnicity. Uh, women are almost always, in a sense, the wrong gender in most cultures. So they're also much more likely to be caught up in enslavement. So I want to say that there are lots of types of slavery, but at their core, it's the same violence and exploitation. Now, the interesting thing about the peonage system is that this is a, this is a form of enslavement that, that, it, that just blossomed up in the United States after the Civil War. So slavery was made illegal in 1865 in the United States, but one of the ways that many of the southern states and uh, local people, and particularly local law enforcement in the southern states, dealt with the fact that they couldn't enslave people legally was to pervert and make a sham of the legal system, which allowed them to arrest people really with no cause, uh, charge them with no due process, and then convict them without any legal basis, but in a way that they could then be sold by local sheriffs, deputies, county judges, and so forth, to uh, iron ore uh, mines, to steel factories, to agricultural plantation owners, and so forth. So this was called peonage because it was ostensibly, fictionally really, uh, working against a debt, a debt which had been a completely false legal fine for a completely false legal conviction. There was a wonderful book, uh, written about this by Douglas Blackman that won the Pulitzer Prize three years ago called Slavery by Another Name about how long that system lasted in the United States, which was from about 1868-69 all the way up to 1940. Uh, that peonage system was alive in the American South. What I discovered, which surprised me a great deal, and what I think you're thinking of, Joyce, is how uh, I was working in the eastern Congo in the war zone of the Eastern Congo just a few years ago, I was there trying to understand a number of things. One was how slavery was being used to, to dig the minerals that go into our electronics and our cell phones and our laptops, what effect that was having on the natural world and the environment, but also to understand the mechanisms, the types of slavery that would lead to that, that destruction. 
And what I discovered was an identical carbon copy of the American peonage system was going on in the eastern Congo today, which came as a great surprise to me. And I have to say, I, you know, I talked to people there. No one there had ever heard of the American peonage system. The criminals had just dreamed it all up again uh, using the same ingredients. I guess, I guess if, you, if you're going to learn how to bake a cake and you have all the ingredients there, you can put it together in a cake-like way. I think that's what happened there, too. They had violence. They had discrimination. They had racial prejudice. And they had a crooked and corrupt legal system, as well as a demand for, for iron, for ore of different types. Uh, it's not surprising in some way that they invented something that had existed before. I found that, you know, I never knew about this. I found this unbelievable, going back to that peonage system. I never knew mm-hmm. about that in the United States. Um, but I know, as you explained in your book, that that is used throughout the world. One example was in the Congo, just as you said, um, and just saying, oh, you're arrested, you've done this, and then um, putting the person into this situation. And where you talk about uh, this is in your new book, Blood and Earth, Modern Slavery, Ecocide, and the Secret to Saving the World, which I found gripping, riveting, um, Amazing, because to me, it was just so frightening that products we use today can be the results of slavery. So one example, but wow, can we all relate to this because it's a product that probably every person you meet uses is the cell phone. And you did give an example uh, in the Congo and how that's all connected and uh, I would like our listeners to hear about that. So would you mind reviewing that? Oh, certainly. Uh, you know, what, what's going on there is that the Congo is a country, of course, which is incredibly rich in mineral resources. It's very poor in what actually reaches the people of Congo, but it, it has that what, what development experts often call a resource curse. In other words, a poor country with corrupt governments, if they discover large deposits of valuable minerals like gold or cassiterite or coltan that go into electronics, uh, it almost becomes a curse, not a benefit to the country because it lures in so many criminals and it, and it, it increases the amount of corruption. Well, in eastern Congo, it, it, in, if, it, if it could be worse, it is worse. And that's because uh, after the Rwandan genocide, a civil war broke out in eastern Congo uh, some some of the peop- some of the participants were the the genocidal uh, forces from Ru- that had to flee Rwanda. Others were other uh, national governments uh, surrounding the Congo that wanted to get in on the act and steal the minerals. Others were just local people who also wanted to steal the minerals. So there, it turned into a, a number of armed gangs, armed forces fighting over these minerals, and they they round up villagers, they enslave them, they do anything they can. And in some ways, it's even become a kind of business as usual in that the, the forces that used to be at, uh, at odds with each other, fighting violently uh, in military actions a few years ago, have realized uh, life is actually a lot better if they just all settle down to their own minds and, and not fight, but, but in fact coexist 
uh, that their criminal enterprises are become much more lucrative. So what happens is local people who have got those weapons that don't have the protection of their government because the government is pretty much non-existent in eastern Congo uh, are then used as slave labor. Some are tricked, some are round, simply rounded up and captured. Uh, and they dig in the most primitive, primitive ways uh, the, the, vener- the minerals like cassiterite, which is made, what makes into, is made into tin, the, the simple mineral tin. But, of course, tin is what's used to make solder, and solder is, of course, what holds all electronics together. Uh, coltan is something that's used to make capacitors and electronics. Gold is also used in electronics. But the point is that uh, these enslaved workers uh, are not just used in ways which are incredibly deadly to them, but are also deadly to the environment around them uh, because they're the people who control them, the criminals, these armed gangs that control them, they don't care anymore about the natural world and, say, the protected gorillas that live in, in the Congo-protected uh, nature reserves. They don't care about them any more than they care about the human beings that they're going to use up to produce those minerals that we use in our, in our, in our laptops and electronics. There, the, most of those minerals are smuggled out of the country. We do have a good law in the United States that says we will not import such minerals from conflict and from slavery. But, you know, criminals can be clever, and there's a lot of ways to, at, at least at the present moment, to get around those rules. And there is a steady, if not enormous, but steady flow of those minerals into the product chains, which end up in, in the things that we buy. It's very difficult to uh, find absolutely clean minerals, uh, but at the moment we're not even quite sure how dirty the minerals are that flow into our electronics. Wow. Yeah, you mentioned about the uh, mountain gorillas. From them clearing land to do all of this in the Congo, it has greatly reduced the population of gorillas. Isn't that correct? Yes, that's right, and that's a particularly um, horrific situation in that the the Virunga National Park uh, of eastern Congo and also part of Rwanda and so forth was actually the earliest national park set aside in Africa in the 1920s, and it's one of the most special cloud forests in the world where the gorillas live and a lot of other uh, amazing endangered species as well as forests which are truly primeval, you know, truly uh, origin forests of the sort that are, are rarely found on the planet anymore. Uh, the armed gangs, they care nothing about that. Uh, they will kill the gorillas just to get them out of the way. Uh, they cut down the forests to burn them to make charcoal so that they can char- sell this charcoal in, in Rwanda or in Congo uh, for, so that people use mainly for cooking there. And and the part that's, of course, heartbreaking in a a small way is that uh, if you leave the gorillas in the park untouched, it becomes a great moneymaker for the poor population of of that part of eastern Congo and and Rwanda because people, Americans, others with more resources are very excited about traveling there for a chance to see gorillas uh, where they live and all of these other amazing species. It's... uh, it's a loss, though, that uh, if if we lose them completely, you know, it's one part of the of the natural world that can that can never be put back, and 
and it just and species loss like that is it's not just a blow you know to to any one of us or any one species it's a blow to the entire whole wholeness of our natural world right and then when they clear more land that also means that people who are in poverty have less ways to uh, grow or work or have anything. That's it, exactly. I mean, land clearance is very important. Forest clearance is very important to, to, to the story, really, of what my book has to say. Because a lot of things happen when you cut down forests where forests should be. Uh, one is that if you cut a whole forest down, it often creates, especially in mountainous zones like eastern Congo, it creates uh, immediate erosion, and you lose the soil, and it creates a situation where that forest really can't come back, unless you're talking about tens of thousands of years that, that it might take for a, a forest to come back. When, when once the trees are gone and, and heavy rains wash the soil away, exposing the, the, the stone the, the, that's underneath, the minerals that are underneath, but the other part of that is, of course, every time you cut down a tree, every, all of the CO2, all of the carbon that has gone into making that tree, because remember, trees remove CO2 from the air and lock it into their wood and to their leaves and their roots and so forth. When you cut, kill a tree, and certainly when you burn it to make charcoal, you release that CO2 into the air. We once lived in a world not that long ago in which the trees were able to remove about as much CO2 from the air as human beings were able to produce into the air, as well as other sources. So we had a balance, and it meant that there wasn't a global warming situation. There wasn't a situation of rapid climate change because we had that energy balance of CO2 in the atmosphere, and it meant that you know things were fairly stable. Of course, with, you can still have seasons and everything like that, but things were fairly stable. The, the wide cutting of forests around the world uh, with slave labor in particular are putting out so much CO2 that, that that level of CO2 in the atmosphere is increasing rapidly. And every time it increases rapidly, as it increases rapidly, that's when we make the process of climate change worse. That's when the hurricanes get more violent. That's when the seasons get more crazy. That's when the sea levels begin to rise. It uh, it's, turns out that slavery, climate change, environmental destruction, they're all tied together in a pretty deadly dance. Yeah, that is amazing how that is all, you know, slavery, the impact on the environment or ecocide. That is just amazing how that's sadly terribly in an evil way combined. I mean, it is amazing. Uh, And you know, when I was reading the book, you had a statement in the book. You said, international law against slavery is paramount, taking precedence over any national law and enforceable by any government anywhere. So far, no country has decided to use this international law to help Congo in slavery, but the tools are there. So, you know, I'm reading this, and here's my question. Why? Why isn't that happening? <laughs> you know, there's a, a, lot of, a lot of... Normally, countries are very 
nervous about sending armed forces into another, or, or even, you know, advisors and so forth, in any other country. There are only a few countries in the world which will do such things. Uh, the United States, of course, is one of them. But it, uh, the United States usually never does so in, in terms of human rights or in terms of uh, climate protection or, or uh, environmental protection. Uh, it's, you know, it's one thing to invade Afghanistan uh, after 9-11 as a, as a defensive movement. Uh, it's another thing to invade Iraq uh, after 9-11 for what exact reason is now unclear since there didn't seem to be any weapons of mass destruction there. Uh, but it's been very rare that any country in the world has been able to act uh, to face up to very large-scale human rights issues or environmental issues. You, you only have to look at the Rwandan genocide and, and a situation in which most of the world stood to the side and watched as almost a million people were, were killed in the, in the genocide in Rwanda over a period of weeks, uh, and everyone knew it was going on, and no one was willing to step in in a serious way. It's interesting, actually, to, to flip back in history. Uh, you know, it, it often comes as a surprise to people that in the 19th century, the British decided that they would take military action about slavery, and they put a naval squadron in the Atlantic that was there for almost 40 years. And, of course, they renewed the ships and so forth. But they were intercepting slave ships, and they did so as a military naval operation. They freed hundreds of thousands of people in slavery, and they thought they were doing a good bit of, uh, of, of diplomatic and, and forward work for a good cause. Uh, there's nothing like that today, and there certainly could be. Right. Terrible. I mean, I just wish that, you know, that that would be enforced because... Um, it's just so terrible what, what they're doing. But just as you said, you know, why did we all sit back and watch Rwanda? I mean, just think if that had gone on for years to the degree they could, this would have been like uh, the Holocaust. It was the Holocaust on a small scale. And as a matter of fact, when you go to the Holocaust Museum, that is one of the uh, displays they have about genocide. Exactly. So terrible. Well, you already talked a little bit, but forest global warming. This is all part of slave slave labor. How is that? How is this global warming in the world's forest? How is that? How is that connected to slave labor? Well, and Joyce, let me start by saying I didn't understand this myself at first. You know, as you know, I, I, I've often been in places around the world and really focusing and studying people in slavery and trying to understand how slavery comes about and how we can intervene to stop it and what we need to do to help those people who have been in slavery to achieve uh, lives which, are, which are, have meaning and balance and, are safe, and are, have safety in them and so forth. It was only took, it took me a number of years to begin to realize that every place I was seeing slavery, I was also seeing terribly destroyed environments. Uh, you know, cut forests, ruined uh, mi mining areas that were polluted with terrible poisons like mercury, on and on. And, and at first I thought, well, is this anecdote? Am I just seeing a few examples? And it was really the, the decision that, that I took to look at this more closely 
and to see if there were patterns in this that led me to write this book. Because as I began this work, looking at this to see if there were patterns, I discovered, my gosh, it's everywhere, it's extensive, and it's much larger than I thought. So how it works, and here's the key thing, is that uh, in some ways, part of the problem starts when, when in the 1990s and, and 2000s, the richer countries of the world begin to pass laws and regulations to protect uh, the big forests around the equator of the planet. So the Amazon, the great Central African forests, uh, the, the enormous forests of South Asia, uh, treaties and regulations are passed which set those forests aside, but which is a great thing. That was a wonderful thing to do. But what we failed to do was then to ensure their protection. Uh, with, them set, with those forests set aside, legitimate people who were in the timber business were pushed out. The criminals realized this was, their acu- this was their opportunity. This was a vacuum they could rush in and feel. And they, you know, they weren't interested in cutting down the little trees. They wanted to go into the best bits, cut down the monstrous, amazing, uh, majestic trees that were hundreds of years old. And they began to do exactly that, and they did it around the world. Slave labor being used to facilitate that smash-and-grab strategy of get in, get the timber, get out, and, uh, and do whatever it is you're going to do with that timber. Now, the reason that's linked so much to climate change is that that increase of extremely destructive forest cutting, deforestation, is simply releasing a very, very large amount of CO2 into the air, even as we're beginning to slow the amount of CO2 we put into the air from sources like our cars and from our electricity plants and and our coal-fired electricity generators and so forth. Here it is in a nutshell. If you calculate up, you know, and say, well, what, what if slavery were a country? If slavery were a country, if you could think of it as a country, slavery would have the population of Canada, about 36 million. It would have the... It would have the gross domestic product, the, the economic output of a country like Angola, about $150 billion a year. So if slavery were a country, it would be a relatively small country in population and a relatively poor country uh, compared to the other countries of the world. But if you add up all of the impact of slave-based deforestation and other slave activities that generate pollution and CO2, it turns out that that little country, that little poor country of slavery, would be the third largest emitter of CO2 into the atmosphere after China and the United States. <coughs> so wow. that, that little country would be the third largest producer of CO2 in the world after China and the United States. Now, that, that I have to say, when I did that calculation... For the first time, I thought I had moved a decimal point, made some grievous arithmetic error. Uh, I had to get other people to check it over and over because I, I couldn't believe it the first time I did it. But other people have checked it, and environmentalist scientists have checked it, uh, and it seems to be the right, the right way to go. And that's a conservative, again, a conservative way of estimating. And once again, the CO2... Um, the damage includes oceans, the global warming, everything, correct? 
Well, you know, CO2 is the greenhouse gas. So mm-hmm. if you've ever gone to your car on a hot day and you've left your windows rolled up and you get inside uh, and, and you realize you're being baked like a cake in your own car because you've left your windows sealed up on a, on a hot day in your car, that's exactly what CO2 does to the planet. The more we have in the atmosphere here, the more we prevent heat, which has come through sunlight, uh, into our atmosphere, exactly like the heat that's come by by sunlight through the windows of your car, the more it prevents it from escaping. So the more we build it up, the hotter the inside of our car gets, the hotter the inside of our planet will get. In other words, wherever we live, it's going to be that way. That's going to lead to the melting of ice caps, the raising of sea levels, and create a situation of much more unpredictable and violent reactions in the weather that we have, as well as changes like uh, warming the atmosphere sufficiently so that insects, for example, that would not have been native, say, to the northern part of the United States, like mosquitoes that carry a Zika virus, uh, those will be migrating up into North America as North America warms, uh, if that happens. I mean, it's possible that we can change this and reverse it. But, yeah, uh, global warming, <coughs> pardon me, caused in exactly that way through CO2 as a greenhouse gas it can lead to a lot of pretty remarkably terrible outcomes. Yeah, which includes... Uh Whales, dolphins, birds, everything. You know, this this has an impact on wildlife, on just so many things. It's it's amazing. You know, in nature this is all this is all one big wheel. And when you start unraveling it, then it keeps going. So um, yeah, it's terrible. Well, Kevin, now here's the big question. Are we able to stop slavery? Is that even possible? Oh, yes. The answer is we can absolutely stop slavery. And we know how to stop slavery. We know how much it will cost to stop slavery. And uh, it, won't, it won't be a quick job, uh, but it's absolutely something we can do. Okay, and, and Joyce, let me say, I, I admit this is a human activity. It's a criminal activity. So... It may not be possible to end it absolutely so that there is zero slavery in the world, but we could certainly, I think, uh, and certainly my goal, uh, my personal goal, is that we would create a world in which slavery was as rare as something like cannibalism, you know, so that a single case of cannibalism is big news all over the planet. Uh, but, but I want slavery to be like that. A single case of it is uncovered, and it's front-page news everywhere. Now, I know 35, 36 million people sounds like an awful lot of people to get out of slavery. But let's remember that 25, 30 years ago, there were that many people often in the world that had smallpox. And we now have a world without smallpox. We don't have that suffering. It's not, again, it's not a, slavery is not something we can fix with, a, with a, a vaccination. But it is something you can fix with decent law enforcement, protecting people's rights, uh, as I say, you know, we know there are different types of slavery. We also know there are different ways to address each of those different types of slavery. And we know that the total cost of this would be something around $20 billion, $25 billion over a period of 20, 25, or 30 years to, to get rid of all the slavery in the world. 
I'm sure there'd still be a handful of criminals that would try to get away with it, but we could very dramatically reduce it. And, and if you spread out that much money across all the people in the, in the world, well, in fact, if you, you know, if you, if you spread out 20 or so billion dollars across just the population of the United States, and you say, well, you know, we're going to pay this off over 20 years because that's how long it's going to take, it would be about 65, 70 cents a, a per person per year. Not much. Not much at all. Boy, you just gave me a good example. You know when you were saying, um, in comparison to the number of people in the world, uh, this, this is not as bad as it was before, you know, with slavery. Um, and right. I said, yeah, it's still heinous. Okay, let's say we would tell people 36 million people in the world are cannibals. <laughs> then what would be the reaction? Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's yeah, just exactly right. heinous. Even at 36 million, you know, that is just astronomical uh, to me. So we had a couple questions that came in before we end the show, and here is the first question. Uh, Kevin, do you see a close correlation between sex trafficking and slavery? Well, I, I have to say most people would define the, word, the term sex trafficking as slavery, and I certainly do as well. Uh, I think there's a, a little bit of confusion out there, uh, not in a bad way. It's just that a number of years ago, the word human trafficking was brought into the fore, mainly in the 1990s, in part because people didn't feel comfortable with the word slavery. I mean, there was this idea that, well, maybe slavery didn't exist anymore, but this new explosion of the, of the movement and exploitation of people after the end of the Cold War needed to be called something, and it was called human trafficking, a part of which would be sex trafficking. But fundamentally, uh, trafficking is not called trafficking unless it ends up with a person being caught up in slavery. In other words, if a person is moved from one place to another, or if a person is caught up in a, in a scam, and they end up being under the complete control of another person, violence and threats being used to maintain that control, that control being used to exploit the person, well, that's the definition of slavery. It's also the definition of, of, of sex trafficking. So they're, they're one and the same thing. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any question about that. I, I'm just looking forward to the point where we stop thinking they're in some way different because they're not. Uh, there's been sex trafficking uh, a thousand years ago and 200 years ago and today. Uh, it's just that it was very often just called slavery in the past. Right, because you're being sold. That's slavery. Exactly. You're being controlled. That's slavery. The only comment I would like to make that you uh, pointed out in your book uh, is how horrible it is with sexual assault if your woman who is in slavery, you're raped. Uh, and you made that very clear that how horrible it is for females uh, who are slaves because of what happens. Is that correct? Yes. I, I mean, I think it's important to say this because often, and especially in the United States, people separate out what they call sex trafficking, and then, they, then they'll compare that to sometimes what they call labor trafficking. But I think one of the things that that you can say that it's absolutely true, 
And there aren't many things in the world that you can say are pretty much absolutely true. But I think it's, it's an absolute truth from all my years of experience in this field is, is to say this. A woman in slavery is going to be sexually assaulted, is going to be raped, and it probably regularly. And it doesn't matter if she's been enslaved in agriculture or in a factory or as a domestic servant or what, she's going to be the victim of regular sexual assault. And I think this is pretty much true across all of, all of the history, human history and the history of slavery. And it's true that women who are caught up, in particular women who are caught up in sexual exploitation as slavery, uh, are going to be sexually assaulted more. But it's not yes or no. It's just a question of the amount and the degree. And it leads us to another interesting and very kind of disturbing truth, I think, as well, which is that if, there's, if I may be allowed a second paradox, it's this. It's that if slavery is the complete control of one person by another, somehow the enslavement of women is more controlling than that of men. In other words, it's more complete. And I say that because men are normally controlled completely in their free will and their free movement and their exterior. In other words, how much they can work and what they do with the outside of their body. Women are controlled in all of those ways as well as in their interiors. What happens inside their bodies? They can be impregnated. They can be aborted. They can be, have their organs removed in ways that rarely happen with men, but sometimes do with women. It's a kind of more intensive form of control through enslavement, even though slavery is supposed to be complete in its control for any person in slavery. It's a slightly paradoxical situation, but I think it helps to understand the nature of the enslavement of women, which is especially difficult to grasp, but also one of the most fearsome things that we face in the world. Let me ask you this this question. You know, all of this is so uh, horrible. Um, and by the way, I want to repeat again, Blood and Earth, Modern Slavery, Ecocide, and the Secret to Saving the World by Kevin Bales, Amazon. Blood and Earth, Modern Slavery, Ecocide, and the Secret to Saving the World. Uh, when you tell this story to people, I know it must often seem to you as if they turn their head to it uh, or look the other way. Do you think that's because uh, it's too hard for them to grab, grasp, uh, they don't think it's true, or it's just too horrible for them to think of? You know, Joyce, I, I, don't, I don't see that many people turning their head. I really don't. Uh, but, of course, we've only been talking about the worst parts of it. And I think, if, you know, in the book that you're talking about, In Blood and Earth, I also have, though it comes toward the end of the book, uh, you know, I have solutions. And I have stories of, of liberation and renewal and, and clear answers about how we can deal with this and how we can bring it to an end. There's an awful lot of hope in this situation. Let me give you one example. We talked a lot about forests being cutting down and creating CO2, but there's actually also something in the global economy called the carbon credit market. And the carbon credit market in its most safe form is based on 
replanting forests. So reforestation is the way that carbon credits can be generated that can be purchased by companies that need to reduce their carbon footprint. Now, what's interesting here is that if you do the sums, what you discover is that if you simply were to employ ex-slaves who had been forced to cut down forests, if you employed them to replant the forests they've been forced to cut, the carbon credit, the profits from carbon credits, would more than pay for their rehabilitation. It would actually pay for the rehabilitation of almost all slaves everywhere in the world. So it, it's a win-win. You get people out of slavery, you use the existing systems that pay to reduce carbon, you pay those to ex-slaves and to the people who get people out of slavery, and you've got enough resources to do the job in both directions, both reducing the CO2 output by planting more trees and reducing the amount of slavery by freeing more people. <clears throat> what a wonderful thing. And uh, I, I just hope that that dream, that realization comes true, although it seems you're moving in that direction, which is such a wonderful thing. So look at you, Kevin. You know, from reading your books over the years, you have accomplished so much in your life more than most people could ever dream of. Um, you know, your dedication, your commitment, you're on a crusade. You are on a crusade. So um, I have to ask you, what would you consider your greatest accomplishment? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, Joyce, you're always so kind to me, and you say things like, you know, I, I've accomplished more than anyone could ever do. But that, I, I just, I can't. I, it's hard for me to accept that just because we, we, I know everyone does what they can do. And people change the world in small ways and big ways, but we never know what the repercussions of all those changes will be. And, and, and I have to say, if I'm put to the test and I look at, at what I've done well or tried to do well, I, I think about the fact that I'm a father and I do my best to be a, to be a good dad and I, and I do my best to... To, to be a good scientist and, and help our understanding. Uh, and it's and it, it, my curiosity uh, that drives my, uh, I think, more than my character, I think it's my curiosity that drives my work along. If that can open people's eyes to a new way of seeing the world, and that new way of seeing the world is one that, where they can imagine and then take and accomplish change, in their own lives and in other people's lives, then I'd be very happy with that. Well, you know, I know you don't like to hear, you know, you're very humble, but you have done so much more than, you know, many people could do. And, you know, I, I just think it's awesome what you have done. Now, uh, before we go to the last question, uh, here's some questions that came in. Um, and one is, how do we follow you to see what you're doing? Well, I, I am on uh, Twitter. Uh, <clears throat> at, I think it's just Kevin underscore Bales, but you can see, you can easily find me on Twitter. Um, uh, that would probably be one of the best ways. And there is, and I have a website, uh, which is just KevinBales, all one word, dot net. Uh, but I have to warn everyone, I'm not the I'm not the most prolific 
updater of my website or, a, or, a, or I'm not someone who tweets every uh, five minutes or anything like that. But certainly the key points will end up in those places. Okay, because what goes right with that is, um, do you speak throughout the world? Do you, you know, do you have speaking engagements? Oh, yes, a, a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, and, uh, and I'm always, there's a place on my website where if people want to talk about uh, having me come speak, uh, uh, it, we, can, we can talk that through and sort that out. Okay. Well, Kevin, first of all, thank you so much. Where are you right now? I'm actually on the island of Guernsey, off the coast of France, uh, which is, you know, the island of Guernsey, which is part of the United Kingdom. Well, here you are, on this island, taking time to talk to us. I just can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for taking time. Joyce, you do so much for so many people. I'm always ready to come and talk to you at any time, because I just think you're wonderful. Well, thank you. One more time, Blood and Earth, Modern Slavery, Ecocide, and the Secret to Saving the World, Kevin Bales. So, Kevin, um, do you have a message for us? I think the message is, is a very short and simple one. Uh, there have been a lot of big problems in the world before. Uh, slavery was one of them when it was legal. Uh, it was considered to be completely insurmountable when it, when it was legal. It was legal for 5,000 years. And then almost within a century, legal slavery disappeared. Uh, now all we have is the, le- the leftovers, the illegal slavery. And uh, if we just put our minds to it, we're going to be able to say we're the generation that ended this blight on humanity for good. And it'll be an amazing gift to give our grandchildren and our children. Well, that is a great message for everyone. And as you know, we end every show with a quote from someone that has impacted the world. And because we have Kevin on today, that has to be from William Wilberforce, who said, you may choose to look the other way. Never say again that you did not know. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader in Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.